I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And welcome to Sublime True Crime. This week, we've got a non-murdery case. Hurrah! I know, right? And nobody named Joanna. Well, that is a surprise. This week, the case is about a raid, a burglary. And without further ado, I think we should get straight into it. No spoilers. No spoilers. We'll spoil it as we go along. It's fine. Easter. The time of year for scoffing chocolate and celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you're religiously minded. In the UK, it's also a cause for celebrations amongst workers because it's a national holiday, meaning that the Easter weekend every year, when coupled with Easter Monday, sees workers getting four days off in a row. Unless you work in retail, in which case that doesn't really work. Sorry, retail workers. Did you know, though, in America, not everyone gets it as a holiday? Only 11 states have Good Friday as a holiday. That doesn't surprise me. I feel really sorry for Americans. They get stiffed on holidays left, right and centre. Well, they get Labour Day and Independence Day and yeah, Thanksgiving. Aren't, aren't there general like, paid holidays from work? Oh, yeah. They the, don't get a bit of a they? unicorn for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So in the UK, we get paid holidays. So we're allowed to be off for, was it, three or four weeks a year and we get paid for it? We get two weeks paid sick leave, generally speaking. Something like 25, no, 26 days. So effectively five working weeks. Plus bank holidays. Yeah. Easter 2015 was no different, especially for staff at the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Company. Hatton Garden is in the Hoburn district of London's Camden Borough, and it's a street and commercial area close to the City of London itself. Now, I've jumped in here because for listeners who are confused as to how a place can be in London and near London, it's just a geography thing. So, put simply... The City of London, which is often called the Square Mile, is the very heart of London, which is north of the River Thames and approximately between London Bridge and Tower Bridge. And it was, until very recently, the financial centre of the country, until it moved to Canary Wharf. London as a city encompasses the City of London, as well as lots of boroughs, including Westminster, and it goes several miles in all directions from the centre, and it's got a population close to 9 million. Is that any clearer? Yeah, I think it's because there's London City, City of London, and then there's London, (laughs) which is the big sprawling mass Which is generally often referred to as Greater London, might be the easier way to say it. Maybe, yes. Hatton Garden is named after Sir Christopher Hatton, a favourite of Queen Elizabeth I, who established a mansion there, as well as owning the garden and orchard of Ely Place, the London seat of the Bishops of Ely. And Dane's fun fact on this one, if you go to Ely Place in London... You're then officially in Cambridge, which is actually situated 50 miles north of London. History and geography, it's weird, isn't it? It really is, especially over in this country. More recently, if you mentioned Hatton Garden to a Londoner, they would tell you that it was famous for jewellery. In fact, it's the centre of the diamond trade for the UK. Jewellery shop workers, whether they work in the heart of Hatton Garden or not, all get bank holidays off, including Good Friday and Easter Monday, which straddle the Easter weekend. And Hatton Garden, in which many Jewish-run diamond jewellers operate, was going to be especially quiet in 2015, because Easter coincided with the Jewish festival of Passover. Two days before Good Friday that year, on Wednesday the 1st of April, electrical cables under the pavement in Kingsway 
less than a mile from the Hatton Garden district, caught fire, which caused serious disruption in and around central London. Continuing for two days, flames were seen shooting out of a manhole cover caused by a burst gas main before finally being extinguished. The fire caused several thousand people to be evacuated from nearby offices and also saw several West End theatres cancelling performances. It also caused substantial disruption to telecoms infrastructure. So at the end of the working day on Thursday the 2nd of April 2015, employees across Hatton Garden locked up their shops, put the working week behind them and headed home, safe in the knowledge that they wouldn't be back at work until Saturday morning, for some of them, and even after working a Saturday, they then wouldn't be back until the following Tuesday. I think it's probably worth noting that realistically, not many of them were going to be open. No, very quiet trading. No, it was certainly going to be busier on the Saturday than it would have on the Friday, Sunday or the Monday. Yes. The Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Limited was a local store which provided secure storage for their clients, quote, irreplaceable personal belongings, end quote. The staff there locked up and left at 8.19pm. They weren't the only ones that were pleased at having the Easter break. Six elderly men were equally happy at the long weekend because, as experienced thieves, they'd been planning a heist which would become known as the largest burglary in English legal history. At 8.23pm, just four minutes after the staff had left, the gang moved in. The gang member that would become referred to as Basil had sourced the key to the building's heavy double wooden communal doors. He let himself in and waited for the last jeweller, Lionel Whiffen, fantastic name, to leave the premises. CCTV covering a rear fire exit door shows a next gang member arriving via a narrow alley. Imaginatively dubbed Mr Ginger because of his red hair, seen beneath a black cap, the man was wearing latex gloves, a blue jacket and dark trousers and carrying a bin bag. Basil opened the doors to let his accomplice in. His arrival signalled a downturn in the fortunes of the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Company. The CCTV video, released by the Daily Mirror newspaper, who actually leaked the video before police officially released it, Mm. went on to show people nicknamed by the paper as Mr Ginger, Mr Strong, Mr Montana, the gent, the tall man and the old man. You'd be really pissed off if you got nicknamed the old man, wouldn't you? Imagine. You can guarantee Mr Ginger would be kicking off as well. It's not Ginger, it's Strawberry Blonde. (laughs) I think it sounds like an all-male Spice Girls tribute. Or maybe the the shittest Reservoir Dogs remake ever made. Yes. Or maybe the Mr Men books, when he ran out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Mr Old Man. Yeah, that works. (laughs) Whatever the old Spice Boys did, they were doing something right as police later confirmed that there was no sign of forced entry. Seven minutes after Mr Ginger had entered, a second member of the gang, nicknamed The Gent because of his smart brown shoes. And if that's the benchmark for nicknames, then I would be called The Athlete because I'm wearing trainers, or sneakers if you're American, (laughs) Um, or maybe The Superhero because I'm wearing Batman pants. Maybe. Batman underwear if you're American. I wear slippers a lot, so what would they call me? (laughs) Um, the old lady. (gasps) Moving swiftly on. (laughs) The gent, his face covered by a balaclava. Not to be confused with the yummy dessert baklava. Makes me hungry whenever Mm, I see the word balaclava. Mm, Baklava. Mm. Arrived with a large holdall. He also wore a hard hat and a high visibility jacket. He was followed a minute or two later by Mr Strong, 
also wearing a hard hat and bringing along steel supports. The two of them then carried more tools into the building. At 8.36, still less than 20 minutes since staff locked up, a fourth man appeared. He was wearing a black sweatshirt with the words Montana 93 emblazoned across the front. Can you guess what his nickname was? Mr. Montana. Yeah. He dragged in wheelie bins with the help of Mr. Strong, and one of the bins is thought to hold a 77-pound drill, which is five and a half stone or 35 kilograms. Quite big. As you may have guessed by now, this was going to be a complex mission for the elderly gang. Their plan was to gain access to the safety deposit boxes held by the company, and the only thing that stood in their way was a shed load of technology and alarms, as well as a 50 centimetre or 20 inch thick reinforced concrete wall. And once they got past all of that, they simply had to gain access to the safety deposit boxes themselves, all of which required two keys to gain entry. Piece of cake. I know, right? They start by disconnecting the CCTV and the alarms, which it seems they managed to do without too many issues. At 21 minutes past midnight, however, the intruder alarm is set off in the store. The alarm was monitored by the Southern Monitoring Alarm Company, who contacted the Metropolitan Police's Central Communications Command. Oh, that's a bit of a tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd let you read that. Yeah, thanks for that. (laughs) Although police recorded the call, the decision was made that no response was needed. Oh, I can only imagine how stressful the life of the person that made that decision is about to get. Absolutely. Kelvin Stockwell, a security guard, was sent to the scene, arriving at 1.05am. But following a cursory check around, he was told by his boss to go home. When I read this, it reminds me of Die Hard, you know, when the the cop goes to the Nakatomi Tower, Nakatomi Mm. Plaza. And the terrorists are holding everyone up and he speaks to the terrorist that is acting as the front reception guard and decides mm. there's nothing that warrants searching it any further. Yes. Yeah, it all looks completely fine. Oh, Everyone's sure closed. it's fine. It's very quiet. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? I can hear some drilling. <laughs> <laughs> At 1am, Mr Ginger is captured on CCTV by the back door. This is the last movement seen outside the building for several hours. And if he was caught on camera at 1 o'clock, and the security guard was round about there at 1.05. They've only just missed each other. Mm. Meanwhile, inside the building, the gang have managed to disable the lift, leaving it stuck on the second floor. They then use a lift shaft to reach the basement, which is where the safety deposit boxes are held. Forcing open the shutter doors into the company's offices, all that was left to do now was to get through the vault wall. A wall, don't forget, that was 50 centimetres thick with reinforced concrete. This is where the 77 pound drill came into play. A Hilti DD4350 industrial power drill. Not a Hilti DD4350. <laughs> <clears throat> Which by all accounts they used to bore holes into the vault wall. And now you said that, thinking about it, if they wanted something to bore with, they could have just read out the make and model of the drill being used. Whilst the game took turns drilling, which was never gonna be a quick job, no matter how good the equipment was, especially given their age, mm. They had a member acting as a lookout in a building across the road. But despite their planning, they struggled to get through the wall. In fact, they got to a point where they failed to dislodge a cabinet of safety deposit boxes and they decided to come back later to complete the job once they'd picked up some better equipment. This was too much for two of the gang. Brian Reader and Carl Wood declared that this was becoming too risky and they backed out of the burglary. And this has got to show how difficult it was. Can you imagine going that far into proceedings and then pulling out? I know. Frustratingly, we have tried to cross-reference the nicknames with the real names, and we are really struggling. And it seems to be because 
it was the Daily Mirror that gave the nicknames, and no one else, although they've used them occasionally, yeah. has um, told us what's what. There's no cross, and there's no way to identify for definite no. who was Mr. Montana and so on. And the CCTV, although it's not bad footage, they are hidden up and you can't see who's who. The gang finally resurfaces at 7.51am after a night inside the premises. Mr. Ginger leaves with two purple holdalls. Mr. Montana carries out two red toolboxes. This time, there was no hard hats, no balaclavas and seemingly no attempt to cover his features. CCTV footage shows him with a shaved head and possibly with an earring. The gent briefly appears a minute or so later carrying a red monkey wrench and bolt cutters. Ten minutes or so after that, the gent is seen again, this time with a bucket of tools which Mr Montana and Mr Strong put into a bag. At five minutes past eight, we get the first sighting of the old man on CCTV a grey-haired gang member who emerges from the side door. I don't really understand how that's a first sighting on him. Did he sneak in undetected or...? Maybe he was in the wheelie bed. No <laughs> <laughs> wonder they were struggling. They theorised it was a drill. They're actually smuggling in the bloke. Seven minutes later, at 8.12am, a white transit van pulls up in the alley. The gang load the tools into the back of the van and drive off. Saturday is a normal working day and the gang aren't seen on CCTV for another 38 hours as they know that the streets around Hatton Garden will be busier than on a Good Friday and the Easter Sunday. You made a good point on this because I thought that the banks and the vaults would all be open on that day. But you know, you, you quite rightly said they would all be shut. There would be some activity above, which is probably why they've gone, actually we'll stay away Saturday so we don't make a noise. Yeah, well you can't be drilling diagonally below a shop that's open without raising some sort of alarm. Yeah. By 10.17pm on Saturday the 4th of April, Mr Ginger was back, again wearing latex gloves and carrying a black bin bag. He was joined a quarter of an hour later by the tall man, the first time that he is seen on CCTV. He's wearing a flat cap and carrying a blue Nike bag and a red toolbox. The old man is with him and between the three of them they spend the next seven hours drilling through the vault walls. Seven hours? They must have been knackered. I couldn't do that. I mean, they're all, what, 60s and 70s, aren't they? Yeah. We didn't say that, we went to Park Run today, didn't we? <laughs> and we couldn't finish it because we were so tired. Uh, <laughs> to be fair. To be fair. <laughs> medical reasons. Yes, yeah, to be fair. Yeah, I'm not 100% healthy. We're still recovering from the back operation. Last yeah, time. so, but yeah, I think we did quite well. We did, I thought we did, we did really did well. over half. But I couldn't imagine drilling three of them no. seven hours. Like, no. Mind you, given that we know how much was behind. Those walls, mate, that's an incentive, isn't it? I still don't think I could do it. No, I mean, <laughs> Finally, success. It may have taken the best part of 57 hours since they started, but they had now successfully bored three holes through the wall, giving them access to the safe room housing the safe deposit boxes. And I should just have an aside here. There are some sources which refer to the holes being drilled through six or seven feet thick walls. As far as I could tell, that just seems wrong. Firstly, you wouldn't have walls that thick. And secondly, when you look at the pictures of the holes, which we'll put up either on sublimetruecrime.com or on Facebook, and think that there is literally enough room for one person to just about squeeze through, and the fact that only two of them actually choose or manage to do so, 50 centimetres seems about right. Yeah. The size of the hole is quoted by the Daily Mail. I know, oh. I know, I don't like them either. I knew you was going to moan. <laughs> they quote it being 50 centimetres deep into the wall, 
25 centimetres high and 45 centimetres across. And if you get a ruler and measure that out, the tape measure, that is not particularly big. You'd stand behind a school ruler, no. Yeah, I would not crawl through that. I'd be afraid of getting stuck. Yeah, alright, I'm too big, okay. <laughs> Very broad shouldered, that's what we mean. Yes, of course. Between them, they managed to force open over 70 safe deposit boxes. In fact, the total was later revealed to be 73 boxes, which sounds impressive, but according to some figures, it was less than 8% of the 999 boxes installed there. Out of the 999 boxes, police later revealed that 5 were empty and 11 were due to be opened by the company following the non-payment of fees, meaning that had the gang continued opening them, they could have gotten away with far more than they did. You did some research into this, didn't you? I did. Yeah, even going by figures quoting the other end of the scale, which say that only half of the 999 boxes were in use, going on to say that 29 of the 73 boxes were empty, and unfortunately for the owners of the deposits, they were mostly uninsured. It just means that they still could have, I mean, half of them were empty, they still could have got a lot more out of it. Well, there are theories online that it was a little bit of an inside job, and that yeah. they had actually been told a rough idea of which ones to target, or that they were looking for a specific safety deposit box. Mm. Because they had the time. Yeah, as we go on to find out, they left quite early, didn't they? They did. They could have opened a lot more. At 5.46am, the tall man emerges from the fire exit door. He's wearing an Adidas top and carrying two red tools. 15 minutes later, and the three thieves, Mr Ginger, the tall man and the old man, can be seen dragging a wheelie bin outside. <laughs> now thinking... Who does that contain? Which, which person have they shoved in there? Sorry. <laughs> we haven't heard of Mr Montana, he disappears, He's just appeared he? a while back. It's obviously heavy as they struggle to do it, and the old man in particular looks out of breath. At ten past six, they are back with another wheelie bin. The tall man makes four more trips in and out the fire exit with bags before a moped pulls up on Gresham Street, which is just outside, at 6.12am. The moped driver, again... Imaginative nickname here, referred to as Moped Man, walks down the alley before returning 20 minutes later and drives off. This is the last we see of the gang at the site of the raid. With the help of William Bill Lincoln, the gang managed to speed their ill-gotten gains to Enfield, just north of London, where the loot was split up. And at first, it seemed like a successful job. After all, they'd gotten away from the scene of the crime without being detected. At ten past eight on the Tuesday following the bank holiday, a full 48 hours after the gang have fled, police are called to the scene after receiving reports of a burglary. They find what they refer to as a chaotic scene. The vault is covered in debris and the floor is, quote, strewn with discarded safe deposit boxes and numerous power tools, including an angle grinder, concrete drills and crowbars, end quote. Now, the thing about safe deposit boxes, and it's probably worth mentioning now, is that they're kept for private goods. So banks don't ask questions about what's being kept in them. There's no inventory. There's no record of anything. The whole reason they're kept underground, locked in vaults, double locked with drawers and surrounded by reinforced concrete, is that they are supposed to be kept secure. It's not uncommon, apparently, for people to keep jewellery, gems, valuables, even guns in those places. Well, interestingly enough, one of the articles that I was reading as well about this had also said that a lot of jewellers from the nearby jewellery shops mm. kept their gemstones in those safety deposit boxes. Really? And also there was one person who said about Howard, there was a jeweller there who had bought a particularly special rare watch 
um, on the birth of his son and had kept it in a safety deposit box there waiting for that child's 18th birthday to present it to him mm. and it's things like that that you put in it you know not everyone's like me with a safe that contains emergency Maltesers <laughs> <laughs> some people have like really valuable stuff to put in there <laughs> I've got what's it called a locker box which is just a three digit combination you can keep it in your fridge so the kids can't steal your food it's thought the gang got away with items worth over £60 million, including jewels, cash and other items. And this is why the reference to this being, quote, the largest burglary in English legal history, end quote, is misleading. Some reports online have the figure as high as £200 million. Others have it as low as £14 million. And when it comes to sentencing, because, spoiler alert, the gang get caught, there was yet another figure. They just don't know, basically. Yeah, that's there it. is no way to definitely know. So what happened after the raid is the police obviously contacted everyone they could that had a safety deposit box. Mm. And when the police are saying, it's the police here, your safety deposit box is now missing or emptied, what was in it? It doesn't matter what you say, it's not insured. Uh, sorry, it's not insured unless you had yeah, some people safety have deposit got box them insurance on it. Insured, but then you'd have to give an inventory to the insurance company of what was in there. Yeah. And generally speaking... From my experience of working in banks, people don't insure them because again, it's a safety deposit box in a bank in a skewer vault. Shouldn't yes, need to. Absolutely. It's a belt and braces, isn't it? Yeah. The police first announced that the facility had been burgled on the seventh of April. The CCTV footage, which, as we mentioned before, was released by the Daily Mirror newspaper before the police officially released it, declared that the robbery had taken place on Thursday, the second of April. The next day, the national press published reports which speculated that the underground fire in Kingsway the previous week was started as a diversion to the burglary. I wonder how much of that was reported as facts rather than speculation. British press? Mm. <laughs> a very high chance. <laughs> the London Fire Brigade later declared that this was not the case, stating that the fire had been caused by an electrical fault with no sign of arson. On the 22nd of April, the police chose to release pictures of the inside of the vault, Photographs clearly show the damage caused by the burglary, including the images of the drill-through wall which the burglars had used to bypass the main vault door. The coverage of the crime was huge at the time, and it was front page of the newspapers for days. So significant was the burglary that the Flying Squad was assigned to investigate it. The Flying Squad, in case you don't know, are a branch of the Specialist Organiser and Economic Crime Command within London's Metropolitan Police Service. And they're nicknamed the Flying Squad, and I only found this out today, because apparently they get to crimes quickly. Oh. I don't know how true that is, <laughs> but we like it. They're also known as the Sweeney, which was a British TV programme for years based on the Flying Squad. And the name itself is based on Cockney rhyming slang. Sweeney Todd, Flying Squad. Oh, okay. Every day is a school day. Absolutely. The Flying Squad mounted a sophisticated surveillance operation on the gang, who made the bizarre decision to meet during the days following the burglary to discuss how best to share out the proceeds. And am I wrong in thinking they should have had a fairly good idea of what they were going to do with it when they were making plans to rob the bloody place? Meeting up afterwards just seems unnecessarily risky? Or is no, that just... no, because they didn't know what they were going to get. If you're opening a load of boxes where you don't have an inventory of what's inside them, you don't know what you're going to get in order to be able to share it out. Would you not just say we're going to split everything six ways? Or I suppose it's not that simple if you've got gems and cash. and Yeah, it's not that simple. You've got to work out the value of what you've got to then be able to split it. And then you've also got the thing of who had the riskier job, the two people who decided they couldn't be asked to finish the job, do they get anything? Yeah, I suppose you're not sitting there at the time going, oh, let's count these out and make no. sure this fairly. you're just throwing everything into bags or wheelie bins and yeah. getting the hell out of there, aren't you? Um, the decision was also made to place gang ringleader John Kenny Collins 
75. 75? Under surveillance, I know. <laughs> this directive was made once CCTV tapes had been reviewed, which showed his distinctive white Mercedes car as he carried out a reconnaissance sweep of the Hatton Garden area before the break-in, and returning in the same vehicle on the second night of the raid. Oh, Kenny. This is the first clue we get as to why he was described as, quote, wombat thick, end quote, <laughs> by his accomplices. <laughs> oh, poor Kenny. He's 75. He should be curled up in front of the TV watching QI. Bless <laughs> his him. slippers. Yeah, the mug of Horlicks. Like me. <laughs> All I will say, listeners, is remember the name John Kenny Collins. He comes up oh, once or twice more. Bless him. Bless him. <laughs> His car was subsequently tracked and bugged as part of the investigation, which led to the gang's arrest. Well done, Kenny. The bugging devices in their cars caught the men boasting of their endeavours, and the surveillance operation also caught three of the ringleaders in a North London pub bragging about the raid. Ridiculous. I don't think he's the only wombat. (laughs) (laughs) He started the trail to them. On the 19th of May, over six weeks since the raid had been carried out, Police moved in on a safe house in Enfield, North London, where the gang had met up once again to divide the spoils of the heist. I don't think they were actually meeting up to divide the spoils. I think they were having like a barbecue and stuff and just hanging out. They're old. They're stuck in their ways. It was probably a fortnightly thing. Yeah. You know, on a Wednesday we'll meet up at so-and-so's house in Enfield. Yeah. Play some poker. Yeah. <laughs> Play some poker. Play with gems. Yeah. <laughs> One of the gang, who was referred to as Basil and who played a key role in the raid, entering the front door of the building and letting the rest of the gang in through the fire exit, was still at large. Police couldn't determine who he was, and naturally, the gang not only refused to name him, but all stood their ground with their claims that he was the real architect of the theft. Oh, you would well, do. Well, damn. Yeah, yeah, of course you would. You would do, wouldn't you? No, no, it wasn't me. It was that random person that you can't possibly <laughs> catch or locate. What did you call him, officer? Basil? Yes, Basil. Yes. <laughs> Following the safe house raid, police arrested 76-year-old, 76-year-old, Brian Reader, a man previously known to police as someone who had been involved in laundering the stolen proceeds of the Brinks Mac robbery. We need to look into that. I don't know anything about the Brinks Mac robbery. Do not? Brinks Mac is really, really famous. That's why I didn't put any other details Really? Really famous. Okay. Do you know Kenneth Noy? Oh, I know the name. He was involved in Brinks Mac. Oh. Yeah. Once we go through it, I think you'll recognise it, but it's a really good one that we should cover off in future. Ah, okay. Also arrested was Danny Jones. He was a youngster. Aged just 60 compared to most of the roots. Spring chicken. <laughs> Jones was an experienced robber and supposedly an expert with keys. He was also one of just two of the gang that managed to slip through the hole they'd made in the vault. The gang were tracked down after they made a series of mistakes, including one member, as we've already said, using his own car during the heist. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny. <laughs> as well as three of the gang not realising that they could be bugged. This led to them collectively being described as... Analog criminals in a digital age. I love that. So they go, what? Back in my day, they weren't allowed to bug you. They didn't have things like that. <laughs> Back in my day, a bug was a cold. <laughs> in November 2015, Carl Wood, William Lincoln, John Harbinson and Hugh Doyle were all charged with conspiracy to commit burglary and conspiracy to conceal, convert or transfer criminal property. Meanwhile, the alleged ringleaders... Terry Perkins, 67, and Daniel Jones, 61, got seven-year sentences. Daniel Jones has aged a year in between uh, when we were talking about him and when he got caught. Also receiving a seven-year sentence was John Kenny Collins, 75, who was the lookout for the gang. That man again. Look, they know he's thick. He's one back thick. 
so they give them a nice, easy job. All right, just okay. sit in the building, look out. Keep a lookout. Okay. Although the gang weren't caught red-handed at the scene, it's no thanks to the skill of lookout extraordinaire Collins, who was the one who chose to drive his own car on the second night of the raid. In one bugged conversation captured by police, Jones is heard saying to him, quote, "Let's get things right. You got money for nothing, mate. You sat up there and you fell asleep." Oh, Kenny. End quote. <laughs> With Perkins adding, quote, and Basil came over and woke you up and embarrassed you, end quote. <laughs> I think you should have done that in a proper Cockney accent. <laughs> I can give it a go. <laughs> in one bugged conversation captured by police, James is heard saying to him, quote, let's get things right. You've got money for nothing, mate. You sat up there and fell asleep, end quote. With Perkins adding, quote, and Basil came over and woke you up and embarrassed you, end quote. That's brilliant. Did you like that? I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kenny, bless you. Oh, my God. I'm going to keep both of those in, I think. Your version and my version. Oh, you? Yeah. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> Carl Wood, aged 59, was one of those that quit the gang halfway through the raid. He got found guilty of involvement after trial and got six years. Mm. Hugh Doyle, 49, got a 21-month sentence suspended for two years after he allowed the group to use his office. He'd already served six months in prison before he was bailed. The father of two had been brought into the plot as a trusted friend of John Kenny Collins. Doyle knew nothing about the heist being planned and never went to Hatton Garden. But when the gang needed somewhere to exchange everything that had been stolen, he was contacted by Collins. Good old Kenny. Collins was given a key to a padlock which secured the doors to a small brick-built shed where the handover was due to take place. Presumably, a place chosen for its privacy. Instead, Collins carried out the exchange in a pub car park, which was covered by CCTV cameras. Kenny, Kenny, Kenny. For fuck's sake, Kenny. I think, Kenny, bless him, there probably weren't CCTV cameras when he was a lad. Oh, bless him. It's cheating. Bless him. Isn't it? Maybe he's just, he's old, he's forgetful, he's tired, he didn't think. It's cheating. It's It's against the way it should be. William, Billy the Fish, Lincoln, who's 60, helped move on the stolen goods. He also got a seven-year sentence. Despite not being directly involved in the robbery, he was not entitled to a reduced prison term, which all the others received, as he did not admit guilt, and he was only found guilty after a trial. Lincoln had dropped Brian Reader off at London Bridge train station after he had pulled out of the heist. He was also on hand to take three hold-all bags stuffed with gems from the raid off Collins's hands on the 6th of April. Presumably that was in the pub car park. <laughs> hey, oh, I'm mate. supposed to be buying that shade. No, 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 that is fine. <laughs> Lincoln was later instrumental in organising the exchange of the bags at the Wheatsheaf pub car park in Enfield. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Did you uh, see how he got his nickname? No. So William Lincoln, obviously William, you can shorten down to Billy. Yeah. And he got called Billy the Fish because he liked buying fish and seafood for his family. Oh. Yeah. Got to find him at Billingsgate Fish Market. <laughs> Governor, inverted commas, Brian Reader, at 77 years old, was the oldest in the group. He was said to be the man wearing the high-vis jacket on the first night and was also the second member that quit the gang halfway through. Police arrested Reader after he was found to be communicating with other suspects after the raid. Before this, he hadn't even been linked to the robbery. Whoops. When detectives raided his home in Dartford, Kent, they seized a book on the diamond underworld, diamond testers, a diamond gauge, and diamond magazines. 
It's just the end of the sentence, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's dreadful. <laughs> they also found a distinctive scarf, which was also in the CTV footage, and they recognised his stripy socks and brown shoes. So we suspect that he was the gents, don't we? We think so, yes. Because he had brown shoes He had on. the brown shoes. And my question would be, why hadn't he thrown them away? Or why hadn't he bought new stuff for the raid, which he could have then thrown away? I imagine it's hard to find comfortable shoes at the age of 77. Once you there get a pair of shoes, shoes that fits and is comfortable, you don't want to get rid of them. My favourite piece of trivia on this was that Rita travelled to Hatton Garden on the first night of the raid using his free bus pass that he got as an old age pensioner. Bless him. Got the 96 bus from Dartford, which would have gone past my old front door. Thank you, Mr Bus Driver. <laughs> Going anywhere nice? No. <laughs> Just into a vault. <laughs> Reader had a stroke in prison and was deemed too ill to stand trial alongside everyone else, although he got sentenced just two weeks after the main group, receiving six years and three months in jail. In perhaps what is a reflection of their ages and manners, upon sentencing, Jones said, Thank you, Judge, while Perkins said, Thank you, sir. When Dor was spared jail, Wood patted him on the back, telling him, Well done. When this was in the press... I think they got a lot of sympathy because they were old men and it was just like a, an Ocean's Eleven kind of adventure and one last try at... Final fling. Yeah. An eighth man, John Harbinson, was found not guilty and discharged. On 28th of March 2018, three years after the raid, Michael Seed, aged 57, was arrested following a search of his home in Islington, North London. The search revealed gold ingots, gems and jewellery worth £143,000 in his bedroom, as well as electronic equipment including an alarm panel and a mobile jammer found around the flat. Revealed to be the mysterious Basil, and we suspect also Mr Ginger. Possibly. Because he's the only one that said to have ginger hair, red Mm. hair. He was charged with conspiracy to burgle and conspiracy to conceal or disguise criminal property. An alarm specialist... He was believed to have let himself into the safe deposit facility in London using a set of keys before disabling the security system. He was the second of the two men who climbed through the hole and into the vault to loot the deposit boxes. Prosecutors told the court that he'd posed as a BT engineer in order to tamper with the security system before the burglary and then used a mobile phone jammer, which apparently was on the 2G network, to block the alarm signal. It was also revealed that Seed had travelled abroad three times after first being photographed, meeting Collins, by a surveillance team in the weeks that followed Hatton Garden burglary, a time at which he was unknown to police. It was suggested in court that Seed may have taken some of the stolen cash to Portugal, where Perkins had a holiday flat in the Algarve. Either way, Seed was identified by the flying squad towards the end of November 2015 and further surveillance footage in April 2016 showed him walking around Canary Wharf. Detectives decided to wait until March the following year to arrest Seed, who had more than 1,000 items that were stolen in the Hatton Garden heist in his possession. He was believed to have been melting down gold and breaking up jewellery on his bedroom workbench as it was brought in from a bigger stash. That must have been dirty, smelly, hot work. It really must have been. Dr Gordon Burrow, a gate expert, was called to go over the CCTV footage of Seed, where he looked through the images of a man, dubbed Basil, who was disguised in a ginger wig, face mask and hat as he went to and from the scene, carrying a black bin bag, which he used to hide his face from the cameras. Dr Burrow told the court that the unusual limp gave strong support to the theory that Seed was Basil. On the 15th of March the following year, 
Michael Seed was found guilty of burglary and conspiracy to burgle. The sentence handed down was 10 years in prison for the former and eight years for the latter, the two running concurrently. He told jurors that he had never been known as Basil, saying, quote, everybody calls me Basil now. I'll be known as Basil for the rest of my life. End quote. Yeah, because that's the bit to get pissed off over, isn't it? I've been given this stupid nickname of Basil. And, oh, as a side note, I'm going to jail for 10 years. 10 years in jail. Could you please just put it on record that my name's not Basil? (laughs) Never has been. Danny Jones, having pled guilty, chose to tell the police where he had hidden his share of the loot. Seemingly, the police showed a lack of interest, which led Jones to take the unusual move of writing to Sky News crime correspondent Martin Brunt, telling him, quote, Whatever I get on Judgment Day, I will stand tall, but I want to make amends to all my loved ones and show I'm trying to change. I know it seems a bit late in my life, but I'm trying. End quote. Oh, bless, oh, bless him. him. The police eventually accompanied Jones to the place where he had buried his treasure in an in-laws plot in Edmonton Cemetery. The police dug up the loot exactly where Jones had said it would be. Unfortunately for Jones, who decreed that what they dug up was everything that he had received from the heist, they hadn't told him before then that they had already found more of his buried treasure in another plot in the same cemetery. Whoops. So naughty. There I was going, oh, bless him. He's trying to come good. No, he's not. Yeah, so he buried a small amount in his in-laws plot in Edmonton Cemetery and then he'd already buried a bigger amount in another plot with the same surname and same cemetery which the police had already found. I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it, really? Well, you're never going to forget, are you? No. Mind Where you, how many you... Jones must there be? Oh, don't deal with all of them. Maybe Jones was just forgetful. After all, he was one of the three robbers, along with Perkins and Collins, <laughs> Collins, <laughs> who, before their arrest seemed to not know, or not care, or perhaps had simply forgotten that the police could be bugging them. It's tape recording of these three in a North London pub that provided some of the evidence that saw them convicted. Fourteen extracts in total were played to the court, mainly snippets of conversations between Perkins and Jones. Although what's being said isn't always easy to hear, there was enough for the evidence to sting. Quote, The biggest robbery in the fucking world we was on. The biggest Tom robbery in the fucking history of the world. End quote. Tom being? Tomfoolery. Rhymes with jewellery. Yeah, rhyming slang. Mm. One of the three reveals their plans to purchase a flat and rent it out for a monkey a week, which is 500 quid. And quite how one would purchase a flat in cash without flagging every single anti-money laundering flag in the world is beyond me. Yes. Just can't be done. Another states his intention of paying for his daughter's holiday. That's quite sweet. I know. The three also spent some time ridiculing both Reader and Wood for pulling out from the heist at the last minute. Quote, Both as bad as the fucking other. Bottled out at the last minute. Supposed to be a full-on face and this one you walk away from. End quote. I'm loving your cockney accent. Trying to be, trying to be You're really getting you. in there. <laughs> right. leg. They go on to discuss Reader in particular, sarcastically referring him to being the so-called master criminal. This leads to prosecuting counsel Philip Evans describing Reader as the master in his opening speech, a description which was then often repeated in newspaper headlines, proof that written transcripts don't always convey the irony intended. Their barbed quotes didn't end there, as they referred to other members of the gang as either a soppy cunt or a fucking idiot. The recordings also give a glimpse as to what made this crew of criminals, who were in the twilight of their careers, plan such a bold robbery. Quote, If we get nicked, at least we can hold our heads up that we had a last go. End quote. 
Oh, it's like their last hurrah. It is. Oh. There was also chatter about a special gadget which would let them know when a police vehicle was within a half a mile. A special gadget. <laughs> if only they'd had something that would have told them when there was a police bug nearby. Bless them. In January 2018, a confiscation ruling at Woolwich Crown Court ruled that John, Kenny Collins, Daniel Jones, Terry Perkins and Brian Reader must pay a total of £27.5 million pounds or face another seven years in jail each. Again, this dwarfs that 14 million figure. And it's a lot lower than the 200 million. It was also quoted. Yes. So it's just all over the place. Mm. Perkins died in prison in February 2018, just a week after the ruling. The Daily Telegraph reported that Perkins died of heart failure after refusing medical treatment because he was watching the Six Nations rugby. Proof, perhaps, that good decision-making was not one of his strong points? Mm. On the 14th of August 2018, Daniel Jones had his sentence extended by six years and 287 days for failing to return £6,599,021. The following year, on the 1st of August 2019, Collins was sentenced to an additional six years, or 2,309 days to be precise, uh, for failing to comply with the confiscation order. During this hearing, it was revealed that Collins had repaid 732000 of the £7.6 million order. Enforcement action was said by the Crown Prosecution Service to be underway in order to seize Collins' remaining assets. I kind of feel that if you were of that age and had done your final hurrah burglary, if you managed to get away with the amount of money they seem to have done and pass it on to your family without yep. being caught, I'd probably stay in jail. Yeah, I mean, obviously I wouldn't because I work in the financial services industry and I can't say that. Yeah. But you can understand, whether, especially the ones who are in their 70s, going, actually, if we can get this stuff, yeah, even if we get caught, yeah, it's, yeah. it's probably a risk they're, worth, they're happy to take. I can understand their logic. Yeah. As I say, it's not something that I would do, not being a criminal mastermind, or even a criminal anything. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind being the lookout, having a little nap. I've never that would be me. <laughs> I just can't stay awake any longer. It's so boring. It's so dull and it's dark. Yes. I'm tired. Due to the age of those involved, the gang have been handed many nicknames since their arrest, including the Diamond Weezers, which is a play on Diamond Geezers, Dad's Army, the Old Blaggers, or thanks to the French press, La Gang de Papi, the Granddad's Gang. I love that one. <laughs> the robbery caught the imagination of the public and also of several producers. It featured in an episode of the American investigative science web TV series, White Rabbit Project, where presenters investigated the methods used in the heist and demonstrated dramatised reenactments. I've got a feeling the White Rabbit Project is by some of the people who did Mythbusters, which is oh, brilliant. Maybe. And Carrie Byron is one of my laminated list girls. Indeed. Indeed. The heist is also the subject of three feature films, Hatton Garden, The Heist in 2016, the Hatton Garden Job in 2017, which starred Larry Lamb and Phil Daniels, and King of Thieves in 2018, starring Michael Caine and Ray Winston. A four-part TV special was aired in the UK on ITV in May 2019. Called Hatton Garden... They're not very imaginative with their titles, really are they? Called Hatton Garden, it starred Kenneth Cranham and Timothy Spall, and had been delayed for 18 months due to ongoing legal developments. To date, the police have recovered some of the stolen loot, seemingly stashed away behind skirting boards or in kitchen cupboards, while the gang worked out what to do with it. 
two thirds of the stolen goods remain unrecovered. And that's that they know of. They don't know for sure. There was no record, was there? No. As for the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Company, the robbery pretty much ended their business. On the 1st of September 2015, just a few months after the robbery, the company was forced to go into liquidation. Unsurprisingly, their customer dried up following the robbery, and the property, which includes not only the vaults, but also an office and a showroom, was put on the market for offers in excess of £200,000. So cheap in central London. Really cheap for Hatton Garden. Yeah. It was quickly snapped up by millionaire property tycoon David Pearl. He has made public his idea to move the vault where the robbery took place, lock, stock and proverbial barrel, to the Museum of London as a public exhibit. If his plan got the go-ahead, the museum would have the ransacked deposit boxes and also the wall that was drilled through to gain access, as well as the heavy iron door that was supposed to keep the vault secure, as exhibits. The idea being that once installed at the Museum of London, the vault would be recreated in all its detail to appear as it did when the burglary was discovered by the staff who arrived for work on the morning of April 7th. And that is the case of the Hatton Garden heist. What are your thoughts? Just think about your granddad. Would he be capable of wielding a 77-pound drill? It's a hell of a weight to carry around, isn't it? It really is. Could he do that heist? And what about the exhibition? If it does go to the Museum of London, if you was in the area, would you go and visit it? I totally would. I would. <laughs> Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.